our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 2 Samuel 19, verses 8b, I guess it is, to 43. Which means that this morning we are focusing on the return of the king. If you are joining us here this morning and not having been with us regularly, we find ourselves near the end of a very long First and Second Samuel series. You will quickly discover that today's text references a number of people and events that we've talked about already in the recent chapters of Samuel. Hang in there. We have to work a bit to see what's coming through in the narrative this morning. But uh, turn with me and follow along and we'll do our best. David's rebellious son Absalom is dead. It was Absalom who'd set himself up as king after stealing the hearts of Israel. It was Absalom's impending arrival in Jerusalem that had forced David on exile out of the city into the wilderness. That had been a day of great sadness and weeping for those loyal to God's king. But even as on one level, as we've discussed, it was the consequences of David's sin that were playing out in all these events, we've seen also alongside that that the Lord was protecting David. In chapter 17, verse 14, our narrator told us explicitly that the Lord's plan was to bring harm upon Absalom. Ahithophel's counsel was thwarted, sparing David and his men. And then when David and his men arrived in Mahanaim at the end of chapter 17, the Lord had provided for David in the wilderness there, using three unexpected persons to do so. And last week, we picked up on the narrative clues in chapter 18, that suggested that Absalom's death, though not David's wish, was no accident. That Absalom died one cursed by God, hanging from a tree, buried in a pit covered with large stones. That was the fate of the one who had opposed the Lord's king. Now it was time for the king to return. And I stress those aspects of the last few chapters because here at the beginning of the sermon, I want to draw attention to what I think is the larger theological agenda of our text this morning. You heard Ron read that text. You may have thought God is barely mentioned in this passage. But as readers of the larger 2 Samuel narrative, we know what it means to see David return to Jerusalem. We know in part because David himself told us what it would mean. Back in chapter 15, as David was fleeing the city, you may recall how Zadok came with the Levites bringing the ark, intending for the ark to go out with David. And do you remember what David said there to Zadok? This is chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. I think this is the closest thing we get to the narrator's view of what's happening in our text this morning. Verse 
Chapter 15, verse 25. Then the king, that's David, said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And I suggested to you in the sermon from chapter 15 that that was a moment of strengthening faith for David. Let him do to me what seems good to him. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. I think... What we're meant to understand from our text this morning as King David returns to Jerusalem is that it is the Lord who brings him back. The text doesn't say that anywhere in chapter 19. But we have to remember that there's a larger arc to what's going on in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're nearing the end of this long series, but in many ways it's only the beginning of the Lord now fulfilling the promises that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. You remember 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, where the Lord spoke through Nathan to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So I'm suggesting, brothers and sisters, David has found favor with Yahweh. The Lord's astonishing and unexpected promises will be fulfilled. This is why the king returns to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 19. But then, let me sound one other note for you that I'll come back to at the end. Because yes, the king returns. But this can't be the way the story ends, can it? At the end of chapter 19. With a kingdom here now divided by fights over tribal identity and favoritism and egos. Absalom is dead. The king has returned. But chapter 19 ends on a downer. (laughs) I mean, for all David's efforts in this chapter to achieve something better, the kingdom remains divided. We'll consider that further, but after we now work through the text before us this morning to come to that conclusion. Verses 9 through 43 of 2 Samuel 19 have a pretty clear structure. It's sort of like a sandwich, the bread of the sandwich, if you will. The top and the bottom pieces that are holding the sandwich together are in verses 9 to 15 at the top, and then in verses 40 to 43 at the bottom. Because in both of those pieces, you're seeing Israel and Judah, and you see them first deciding about bringing back the king in verses 9 to 15, And then you see them in verses 40 to 43 disputing about bringing back the king. In between those two pieces, 
we then get the meat of the sandwich, which can be a portobello mushroom if you're a vegetarian, but whatever. It's there in the middle where we find these three encounters now that King David has with Shimei, verses 16 to 23, with Mephibosheth, verses 24 to 30, and with Barzillai in verses 31 to 39. And there's a number of interpretive elements that are debated in all three of those encounters, but I'm suggesting to you this morning that on the whole, our narrator intends for us to see that David's trying, that David's seen pretty positively in all of this, The narrator views him positively, as he does in the opening section as well, in verses 9 to 15. This is my suggestion. So let's start in verse 9. Israel's in a dilemma. Verse 9, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And this gets a little tricky. But it seems that Israel, in verse 9 there, is a reference to those from the northern tribes whose hearts had gone after Absalom. David's own tribe, you may know, is Judah, which is in the south. But the tricky thing is that it's quite clear here that there were plenty of folks from Judah who had aligned themselves with Absalom too. Nonetheless, the argument we're reading about in verses 9 and 10 is taking place among those of the northern tribes. Judah seems to be somehow separate, which isn't good. David isn't happy about the fact that Judah seems to be on a different page at this point than the rest of Israel. And David shouldn't be happy because years earlier, David had made a covenant with all the elders of Israel, including Judah. And I think this is pretty important for understanding our passage this morning. So if you're you're there in the Bible, turn back a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And I'll just read verses 1 to 3 of 2 Samuel 5. This is the beginning of David's reign over all Israel. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Hold on to that. We're going to see David use that exact language again in our passage. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. You'll recall that prior to that in 2 Samuel, David had been anointed king in chapter 2, but only over the house of Judah at that point. The glory in chapter 5 is that now it's a united kingdom. 
David makes a covenant with all Israel and they anoint him, which evidently is what they'd also done with Absalom. Did you pick up on that? In verse 10 of our chapter 19 today, they say they had anointed Absalom, which actually we didn't know about. I mean, maybe you would have assumed it happened, but it never said that it did. Presumably that happened in Hebron in chapter 15 when Absalom claimed the throne. And you see, that anointing of Absalom then would have been understood by those involved in it to supersede the covenant with David. So that the question that's under dispute here was, well, now that Absalom's dead, can the covenant with David be revived? Or had the arrangement with Absalom abolished it? And evidently, the reasoning that's winning the day in the argument here is that indeed the covenant with David can and needs to be restored. Because David had always been their savior. And so this information somehow gets to David. Only evidently, David hadn't been hearing anything like that coming from Judah. Which seems weird, right? Because Judah had been, as we just said, the first to anoint David king back in chapter 2. We're not told why now Judah's the last to propose bringing back the king. Maybe, this is my suggestion, Maybe Judah was the slowest about restoring David because Judah was, above all, the one who realized just how badly they'd blown it concerning David. I mean, think about it. Absalom's revolt had erupted in Hebron, in the heart of Judah. That couldn't have happened without Judean support. Ahithophel, David's counselor, who had defected to Absalom, was from Judah. Amasa, the, the, the general whom Absalom appointed, was from Judah. I mean, Absalom had evidently won significant support within Judah. So here Judah is. The first ones to have anointed David and they'd played a key role in Absalom's rise to power, what are they supposed to say? Maybe what's going on here is that Judah had the most to fear from the return of the king. They'd turned on him. Maybe if David returns, they figure he's coming with an axe. Which would mean, if, if that's right, which would mean then that verses 11 and 12 of our passage aren't so much a rebuke on David's part as they are an encouragement. I think this is David appealing to, reassuring Judah. Listen to these verses again. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king and 
and say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. You see, I think this is all a signal that those in Judah who had supported Absalom need not fear retribution from a neo-Davidic regime. Does that make sense? That in other words, this is David doing what David had to do. He had to have Judah with him. He couldn't return as the king of only the northern tribes. It wasn't David who created the distinction between those who had decided to bring the king back and those who hadn't. It's not what David's trying to do. David's message was intended to bring Judah and Israel together again. That's what David wants. And I'm arguing that in part because I think the key is in verse 12, that when David says, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh, he's using the same language that the northern tribes had used when they anointed him king back in 2 Samuel 5 that we just read a little bit ago. In other words, I'm suggesting this isn't David favoring his closer relationship with his own tribe over the northerners. I think that's precisely what he's not doing here. Though I should tell you that most commentators disagree with me on that point. But I think this is David drawing attention to the identity of relationship that both Judah and the northern tribes had with him as their king. They all belong to David as his body, if you will. Retribution against Judah wasn't on David's agenda. So what does he do? He maintains Absalom's appointment of Amasa, a fellow member of Judah. David wants to assure the people of Judah of his generosity as their king too. So that's me here taking the high road reading of this as it reflects on David. And then verse 14 confirms that it worked. David will have Judah's support, in fact, along with the northern tribes. Verse 14, and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. And listen to how the narrator summarizes the moment then. In verse 15, the text says, So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And what I'm saying to you is that that's supposed to be positive. This is hopeful. I mean, here's David crossing back over the Jordan from the wilderness where he was in exile. If you were here a few weeks ago and we looked at chapter 15 when David was going the other way out into the wilderness, I made the brief remark that the narrator very intentionally, it seemed, kept using a key word that meant to pass over or to cross over. Nine times as David crosses over the brook, crosses over the river, and so on. Well, you can't see it very easily because it gets translated in English in chapter 19 in a, in a wider variety of ways. But the narrator uses that same word 15 times in verses 15 to 41 as David's coming back. It's the same word that's used repeatedly in Joshua chapters 3 and 4 when the people are entering the promised land 
claiming the promises of God in the days of Joshua. This is a hopeful scene. David's re-entering the land. His exile in the wilderness is over. So where do the people of Judah meet him in verse 15? Well, in Gilgal. Does any bells ring in your head? I know there's a lot of backstory to all this, but does Gilgal strike anything for you? We talked about it a long time ago. Gilgal was where the people went when they had come up out of the Jordan in Joshua's day. We talked about how in Joshua 4, how Joshua set up the 12 stones that they'd taken from the Jordan, and he set them up in Gilgal to be a memorial to remember the mighty hand of the Lord. Remember that? Remember how it was therefore to Gilgal that Samuel, old Samuel, had brought the people to renew the kingdom in 1 Samuel 11? When Saul was made king before the Lord in Gilgal? We spent a lot of time talking about that. The covenant renewal in Gilgal. Of course they come to Gilgal to meet the king. I mean, if you're reading Samuel for the first time here, I don't mean you right this moment, but just imagine you're reading this for the first time. I think this has to strike you as a moment of hope here in the narrative. David's done the right thing. The Lord's favor is on him. Maybe Israel will be united again. Renewing the kingdom at Gilgal, gathering around their savior king. I think it's fascinating then that our narrator stops that narrative flow. Our narrator now forces us to suspend that line of thought. We don't know exactly how it's going to go. We're not told yet what happens. Instead, we hear about three different encounters that David has. You see what the narrator is doing. As I said earlier, the details are debated here, but the point seems to me to be to portray David, the returning king, in largely a positive way here. Now, we've met all the people that David will interact with here now before in Samuel. I'm not going to develop the full backstory of every one of these, but I do want to say a few things about these three encounters. So just try and track with me as we move now through the, the meat part of the sandwich, right? First is Shimei. Shimei was in chapter 16. Remember, he had violently cursed David as David was almost to the Jordan River in Baharim. Shimei is from the family of the house of Saul, chapter 16 told us. You may recall there how David said, leave him alone. And now here's Shimei again. And our narrator gives us a few hints about how to understand what Shimei is trying to do. He tells us, oh, he hurried to come down to meet David now. And Shimei brings a thousand men, the text says. Probably intending to show David just how influential he was. Shimei will even cross the river before David comes over it just to get to the king. He's so eager. He falls down before David. He eats crow in verse 19. Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. You remember what? My Lord the king. I mean, this 
Do not let the king take it to heart. End of verse 20. I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph. That's just a way of talking about the northern tribes. I'm the first to come down to meet my lord, the king. Now, how do you think we're supposed to understand this? I mean, the narrator doesn't say straight up. It's hard to know for sure. My read is I don't think Shimei's become a different man all of a sudden. I think he's trying to save his skin. I think the political realities have shifted, and he knows it. He submits to David because he sees the reality. He had miscalculated badly. He thought David's kingdom was over as David marches towards the Jordan through Baharim. I'm suggesting to you that if David hadn't returned as king, I don't see Shimei regarding his cursing of David as having been so terrible. That's what I'm saying to you. But, oh, now he hurries. Now he hurries over the Jordan. He brings a thousand men with him, and Abishai offers to kill him, and David refuses it. But not, I don't think, because David somehow detects genuine remorse from Shimei. I think it's because David knows that today can't be about that. Abishai doesn't get it. Abishai doesn't see how doing away with Shimei here would just harm David. On today of all days, middle of verse 22, David says, Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? I mean, you, you hear there what David thinks is happening in all of this? You see, if David acts as Shimei... What happens? Well, some other Benjaminites and some other northern tribes begin to wonder if a purge is coming to them. I mean, David needs to hold the tribes together. So verse 23, And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. At least not today. Because this isn't the end of the story regarding David and Shimei. And you note-takers... You can jot down 1 Kings 2, verses 8 and 9. It's only a few pages to the right. 1 Kings 2, verses 8 and 9, when David tells Solomon what to do about Shimei. And then in verses 36 to 46 of that same chapter, 1 Kings 2, you read the account of how Solomon dealt with Shimei. You could follow up on that. Well, after Shimei comes Mephibosheth. Though here we have to accept that the narrator has, has arranged this in a non-chronological way to paint the picture of David for us. Because verse 24 says, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. But verse 25 tells us where that happened. It was when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, it says, that this conversation we read about takes place. In other words, this dialogue actually happens later when David's back in Jerusalem. He's not back there yet. But the narrator puts it here. Why? Because back in verse 17 of our text, we're told that Ziba had come to see David along with Shimei, which doesn't ring very positively for Ziba, if the way I'm interpreting Shimei is right. But we encountered Ziba back in chapter 16. If you remember, he was Mephibosheth's servant. Mephibosheth is a son of Saul. Ziba was but Mephibosheth is crippled. 
Remember? Ziba was his servant. Ziba comes to David alone in chapter 16 while David's leaving Jerusalem and says, well, despite all the kindness that you had shown to Mephibosheth in the past, that was 2 Samuel 9, talked all about how David treated Mephibosheth kindly. Ziba says, no, Mephibosheth has remained in Jerusalem. He's aligning himself with Absalom now, David. And you remember how David then gives all of Mephibosheth's land to Ziba. Well, here goes Ziba now joining Shimei in a hurry to get to David, I think, because he he knows he needs to stay on David's good side because Ziba knows that what he knows what David's going to find when David gets back to Jerusalem. David's going to find Mephibosheth and David's going to realize that everything Ziba had said was a lie. Mephibosheth hadn't abandoned David. He'd been so distraught by David's troubles and and time away that he hadn't taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard or washed his clothes, the text says, until David came back. Mephibosheth was loyal to David, which Mephibosheth explains. He tells him what happened. I mean, a lame guy can't saddle his own horse very easily. So in verse 26, he answers David's question that was there in verse 25. He was framed, basically. And what I notice here, though, is that Mephibosheth's concern is that David see his loyalty. He's not asking for his land back. Did you notice that? Verse 27, Mephibosheth says, he, meaning Ziba, he slandered your servant, meaning himself, to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. Or in other words, Mephibosheth will be glad to submit to David's will, whatever it is. He just is glad David's back. He knows he doesn't have any right to ask for anything, verse 28 says. It was all just the kindness of the king that he had any of it. So then David reverses his previous decision to grant Ziba all of the land. But then it is a bit puzzling try to sort out why David decides to split it between Ziba and Mephibosheth. I said, be honest with you. I'll give you two options for trying to think about that. On the more positive side, you could read it. A few people go this way. You could read this as David sort of doing a kind of test not unlike Solomon threatening to divide a child in two to determine who the real mother is. Remember that story? I mean, maybe David wants to make sure Mephibosheth's story is true. In which case, Mephibosheth's response for us there proves he's the real deal, right? He can take the land. (laughs) My king is back. Or, not quite so positively, Maybe David decides he just doesn't want to alienate the whole Ziba contingent. Maybe he does what he thinks he can. Maybe Ziba's efforts to get to David right away with all his household in tow, maybe that paid off, and maybe David figures he needs to win all the support he can. So David makes a an understandable, pragmatic decision, but it's not exactly a just one. I don't know. I'm inclined to go with the more positive option, but it's hard to say. Either way, Mephibosheth shows that he's the loyal one, and 
David has at least partially reversed his poor decision in the past. Well, then thirdly comes Barzillai. This one's all sweetness. This is a very sweet text, actually. Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim. I don't know. I just take delight that these characters show up in the Bible like this. Barzillai, the Gileadite, was one of those who brought David abundant provisions in the wilderness. You recall at the end of chapter 17, now he's coming to see David back across the Jordan. We've never, we, this is the first time we, we hear about him in any length. The narrator tells us Barzillai is very wealthy and very old, especially for that day. 80 years old is older than most people lived in David's day for sure. Verse 33 says, the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. And David wants to return the favor and Barzillai won't go. How many years have I still to live? He asks. He can't taste much. He can't hear well, evidently. Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city. That's verse 37. But, Barzillai says, here is Chimham. I think the text says a servant. Some people suggest it's his son. Let Chimham go over with my lord the king. And you know, David accepts it. Loyalty to God's king matters. David, in fact, will remember the sons of Barzillai even in his instructions to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, if you look at it. So here we are, we come to verse 39, and I'm just trying to argue that this this is an overall positive scene. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. Verse 40, the king went on to Gilgal, and Shimon went on with him. And then the narrator says, all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way, or Literally, there's that verb. They caused the king to cross over. That is, to cross over the Jordan. Which should be the highlight. The high point. The moment we've been waiting for. But now it becomes the moment when you begin to sense that as good as it is that David's returning as the king Things aren't going to turn out the way David hoped they would. Because there's a contrast there, even in that positive verse 40. All the people of Judah were represented when David was crossing back over into the land, but only half the people of Israel. We don't know why. Remember, word had reached David back in verse 11 from all Israel about this debate about having him return as king, which seemed to be where they were moving. For some reason, all Israel wasn't there or represented there when David crossed the Jordan. Had they wavered in their thinking? Had the argument gone on? Had they simply delayed too long? I don't know. We're not told But whatever the case was, verse 41 then says, all the men of Israel now have a complaint. 
it's possible that this is reflecting additional arrivals who've come from the northern tribes now who say to David, you know, they, they weren't there. And now they say, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? I mean, they're upset that they weren't fully represented. And then things begin to unravel. David's not the one who responds. Notice that. They talk to David, but David's not the one who responds. Verse 42 says, all the men of Judah answer the men of Israel which predictably didn't help because they claim this closer relationship to David than the other tribes, which I'm suggesting is precisely what David was trying to work against when he had sent his initial message to Judah. But they claim it, and then they insist, well, they hadn't received any privileged treatment from the king. But then then verse 43 says, well, then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. The answer back. And just look at the substance of this. I mean, it's like, no, we're ten tribes. You're only one, Judah. Which is eleven because Levi doesn't count here, right? Because they're the priestly tribe that are scattered throughout. So ten to one. We have a greater investment in the kingship than you do. We were first to speak of bringing back our king. Notice how they call David our king. Note this, they weren't upset David was returning. I read a lot of stuff that suggested that they didn't really want David back. I don't see that. They weren't upset, not yet. (laughs) Problems are developing. They weren't upset David was returning. They're upset they weren't all involved in it. We don't know why they weren't, but they weren't. This is a mess. And it seems on the one level like this bickering is just pointless, but then it's going to be serious because what it intimates for the future of Israel will be disastrous. And I know this seems like a subtle thing to draw out at this point, but I think it matters. I think the narrator is signaling for us in the whole shape of this chapter that where this is ending up wasn't David's doing It wasn't David's fault. David had done all the right things, quote unquote, in this narrative. Now, maybe you think at times he was a little too political for your taste, but he knew what to do. He'd reached out to Judah. He'd handled matters with Shimei and Ziba and later Mephibosheth at least reasonably well. He'd sought reconciliation. He'd even been willing to take in the son of Barzillai, right? But then Israel's reaction to the manner of his return, whatever their grievance was exactly, followed by Judah's fierce reaction to Israel's reaction. You saw that last line of the text. I don't know what to say about it. The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. I mean, they're not getting along. That's the point. It leaves us with this overall picture, brothers and sisters. Listen, we're almost at the end of 2 Samuel's narrative. Next chapter is it. And then we get four chapters that are a bit of an appendix to the book. I mean, they're they're crucial to the book, but they're not a continuation of the narrative. We're basically at the end of the narrative. Things aren't going to look pretty next week. We can already tell that. Here's where 2 Samuel's narrative is ending. 
You see, the rightful king has returned and there's no peace in the kingdom. Think about that. The rightful king has returned and there's no peace in the kingdom. The hopefulness you felt earlier in the chapter, it's gone. It's gone by the end of it. There's only one thing you say at the end of chapter 19, it's this. David's not the answer. Think about that. David's not the answer. Oh, I'm still saying David was God's anointed king. David was favored by the Lord. The Lord had brought David back. That's all true, but I'm suggesting to you that the picture we're coming to here at the end of 2 Samuel isn't it. The picture we get here of the return of the king can only, I think, serve to highlight for us that it will only be the advent of the great king. Not David, but great David's greater son. It will only be some other great king who will bring about the eternal promise that we've been wrestling with through this book. The promise of an eternal kingdom then united around the ultimate Davidic king. Only the son of David, who was also the son of man, would manage to draw all people to himself. To bring about the unity that David couldn't. And so much more than that. Because the unity that that king would bring wouldn't come about through political machinations or military conquests but through the cross so that this tone rings clear through the New Testament the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Messiah Jesus, King Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Or again, Ephesians 2, verse 14. Paul writes, For he himself is our peace who has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man, so making peace and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross. so that in a way far greater than David could have intended or ever have achieved, even we are Christ's bone and flesh. Are we not? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.